War is declared on retro. All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Million dollar retro. The C64 is a theremin. Japanese minister declares war on old-fashioned technology. All this and more coming up on today's show. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Hello, everyone. We've got Chris, we've got Dave. And for those watching, you'll see Dave's cat, Johnny, is joining him. Although for how long he'll stay with us, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but he always likes to make an appearance. Hello, Johnny. Uh, just a reminder for anyone who might be choosing this, our 91st show. Uh, to join us for the very first time. This is This Week in Retro, where we like to chat about the week in retro. That includes the news headlines as submitted by you to our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash This Week in Retro, and a general catch up between us on what we've been doing. And then we like to see your comments under the show on YouTube or on whatever podcast app you like to use, or even on Reddit, and um, see what everyone's up to and share our love of the hobby of retro. So, um, I'll start, if you like, with this week. Um, what I've been up to is I've had a incredible week of donations. Now, I put a video out to my patrons this week, which will be public next week. Um, a really kind guy called Ian basically donated his entire retro collection. And when I say entire collection, it filled up my estate car. It filled up Mark Fix's stuff's van. Um, you know, it took two vehicles to get it all over to the cave. Quite where I'm going to put it all, I don't know. Public this week, though, Neil. Public by the time that people watch this, they should be able to see the video. Oh, yeah, I'm getting my timings all up. By the time this show goes out, that will be on the on the channel, public. Yes, well done, Dave. Good catch. So you can see that. However, what's been going on behind the scenes is um, just at the day after I collected those, we had a donation from a very kind chap called Lee. And I think he sent now seven boxes in total of mostly Amiga games, big box Amiga games. And in amongst it were some real treasures, including big box CD32 games, because you normally find you've only got the dual cases. So there's things like Brutal Sports Football, big box on the CD32. I think James Bond 3, I want to say. Um, big box, loads of stuff in there. It's a, it's a really kind donation. And then, just as if that wasn't enough, another donation comes in on Saturday, um, a, a chap brought along a car full, another car full of um, incredibly rare retro. And uh, we'll talk about this a bit more in one of our stories this week. But let, let me just tell you a few of the things that were included because I cannot wait to make videos about them and show them to people. Okay, a Magnavox Odyssey boxed with all the bits in there. Ooh. We're talking 1972, the first ever commercial games console. This That's where it all began for gaming. I, I never thought I'd own one of those. That's a real museum piece. Um, an FM Towns Car Marty. Have you come across those before? It's an FM Towns. Names, but... So you remember the FM Towns is that nice looking tower machine with the CD drive in the front, the first machine with the CD ears. drive as standard. The ears on the um, monitor, is that right? Yeah, if you've got the official monitor, there's ears on the monitor. Hmm. Well, they made a version that slots into your car. What? So it replaces your car stereo. <laughs> <laughs> and then you pull it out. And um, it's also got the kit with it, the sort of home conversion kit, so you can then plug it in at home and just use it as a regular machine at home. You're like this, Dave, considering you're wearing your Ultima 6 T-shirt today. The FM Towns is the only machine with a talky version of Ultima 7. Yeah, Ultima 7. Ultima yeah. 6. Uh, how, Ultima how, 6, is it? How good is the speech, though, in Ultima 6 talky on oh, the FM Towns? It's terrible. It's terrible. It's worse than your local amateur dramatics club. You know, because... I think Richard Garriott himself is in, in there as well, his voice. Because yeah. I, I know that you can, I think, unless I've dreamt this, I think with um, through New V, which I think is the equivalent of Exalt for Ultima 6, uh, I'm on shaky ground here. I think you can you can play it on Scum VM with the with the the voice acting taken from FM Towns and inserted into it. Oh. Yeah. You can. I, I, I've done this. I can't remember which engine it is that you use, whether it's Scum VM or Exalt or Nuvi, but you can you can use the ripped voices from the FM Towns and then the PC version, so you get kind of the best in quotes of both worlds. Um, it's quite a fun thing to do. Yeah. 
Um, and I think you can also use updated portraits of the uh, the people in the game, and it sort of mixes and matches all the best bits. Um, anyway, also in this donation, PC Engine with a CD-ROM ROM. There's just so much. Uh, and I, again, I've put it in the arcade because I don't quite know where I'm going to put it yet. So this has really prompted me to say I've got to sort out the storeroom again. I've mm. got to make space. I've got to decide... Um, you know, it's that it's that question that comes up every week. What do I need to keep? What do I need to get rid of? What what's important? What do you collect? Why do you collect? You know, it, it, it's raising all these questions again. So, I think that the whole experience of sorting this out is worth sharing with people. And um, boy, have we got a collection! It really does feel like a museum now with these some of these items. Yeah, I think what people perhaps don't understand about the the cave is. That the storeroom's not big at all. You don't have a lot of space. You don't have. You, mm. you make the assumption there's a big room down the back with loads in it, but having visited it, it's really not very big at all. You're going to need to work really hard to make the best use of that storage and avoid having just a clutter of stuff that is of years course. deep before yeah. you manage to get to it. Yeah. Well, the ideal the ideal way of storing things in the cave is storing them in such a way that people can see them. So glass cabinets, you know, out on display, they don't all have to be hands on. So I think my goal is to make as much of that space usable as display space and still keep a small storeroom, but um, the more we can show people, the better. Anyway, let's not go any further down that rabbit hole. Chris, tell us about your week. Well, look, uh, see if you guys can guess what I've been doing, actually. I've just put in the show notes, STSC. Um, well, the Atari ST Supreme Computer. Sh- Super cleaning. Oh, but, oh, the, the, um, the last word is completed. He's writing. The last word is Complete. completed. I've completed a game. STS completed. STS. Mm. Stunt. No. SDS Save. completed. STS. Save the <laughs> sheep. Sausages. Right. One more word. <laughs> Simon the sorcerer. Yes. Simon <laughs> the sorcerer. I've I've gone through it. You know, enough oh. of this. Chris doesn't do point and click adventures. I've done one. So my mate Shane lent me Simon the Sorcerer. Ever since I brought back a CD32 from the UK, he lent me his power supply very yeah. kindly. And because I don't have one, and um, Simon the Sorcerer. So that's the only game I've had access to. Uh, I did use a walkthrough, and I'm glad I did because okay. there's no way I'd have been clicking on some of the areas of the screen that I needed to look for. Absolutely no way. But yeah, it was an enjoyable experience. I can see the appeal. Um, but yeah, definitely. Definitely enjoyed having a handhold through it, um, so it was really good. So, yeah, thank you, Shane, so, how, so much how, for that for that loan. How did you use the walkthrough? Did you try to do it yourself and only no. go to the walkthrough when you're stuck, or did you use it like following a <laughs> recipe? No, didn't. Well, that's not true. I did have a, a couple of days before I looked up a walkthrough. Um, I did just have yeah. a poke around and got as far as the centre of the forest. No, actually the tower, um, but didn't have the right things to ring the bell, uh, that kind of thing. So I was going to use a walkthrough anyway, um, and then Shane came around with a full printout of one, and I it was the same one I'd found. So I'll put a link to the, the walkthrough that I used in the show notes if anybody's interested. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was really cool. Neil? What's it like in terms of dead ends? Because you know how some Sierra games, you can find yourself in a situation where you can't get the object that you need to then progress because you've missed it earlier in the game. Is mm. it a pretty well-rounded game? So I've played it, but I haven't I haven't completed it, so I haven't played it in a huge amount of depth. Yeah, so I, I found that it was fairly it was a fairly laid-back game in terms of there was no real fear of the character dying. If you messed up in a room, it just restarted you in that room. There was a couple of activities that were sort of time-based. You know, you had to click on the right thing in a certain amount of seconds. Otherwise, you know, like the mummy, I think, was the main thing that kept getting me. Um so I had to retry that a couple of times. There it is. Dave's holding up a big box copy. Um, um, but other than that, in terms of dead ends, no. Because I was following a walkthrough, I didn't really come across that. There was one place where I had forgotten to pick something up or I hadn't quite understood the instructions, but the game allowed me to go back to the location that I needed to collect the more coins using the um, uh, the magnet on the, on the rope was what I had to do there. Um, mm-hmm. you, had to, you have to fish a couple of times for the coins uh, in the dragon's hole um and then then it's absolutely fine simon the sorcerer had a pretty significant patch to it after it came out to, to iron out a lot of the bugs and a pro- well, there weren't a huge amount of bugs but just little tweaks and things like that mm. um but i imagine by the time it got to the cd32 that was all incorporated into it and yeah sorted yeah. and of course that was a talky yeah. version so really enjoyable 
Really cool. Yes, that, with Chris, Chris Barry. Barry. That's right. Mm, Rimmer. Yeah. yeah, Rimmer. Yeah. What have you been up to, Dave? I'm still ill, unfortunately. I still can't oh. shake this. I'm still exhausted and sore, but something has arrived through the post yesterday that I was quite excited about. We spoke about it on a previous show, and I'm holding up to the camera now ah, a yes. fighting fantasy book <gasps> from oh. Steve Jackson, The Secrets of Salamonis. It's actually bigger than I thought it was as well. It's a nice kind of A5 size rather than the, 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 the tiny paperwork you get. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 368 pages. I know Neil would, would, would require to know that. 368 pages. I'm looking forward to it. Um, and I will be certainly cheating as I play it with my fingers in several places at once. Nice. I went to a bookshop recently that had all the the new reprints of the old ones on the shelves, and it was lovely to flick through them. And I think I'm going to make a special trip just to go and pick up that, that book, buy my first fighting fantasy in over 30 years. <laughs> there's two. There's, there's, there's another one come out as well just now um, on the 40th anniversary. I forgot the name of it. Chrissy linked it to me and said, did I buy that? Or was it was it was it Asnabor? Whatever it was, um, and there's two just come out: Secrets of Salamones and the one that I've forgotten the name of. I'm no use at all. But yeah, excellent. Well, we've had a busy week of retro. Should we uh, head into today's stories and see yes. what's been going on? Let's do it. Our first story today, then million dollar retro. Uh, a question for you guys: What's the best part of collecting retro, or anything for that matter? And this is something I touched on when I was talking about uh, the donations uh, just a moment ago. Is it the thrill of the chase? Is it hunting down rare items? Is it going on trips to all corners of the world to follow the lead on one a one of a kind bit of retro? Well, if you're a retro console collector, you can cut all that out now. You can skip the hard work and you can pick up a job lot of every single console ever made, including all of the variants in their boxes, an instant collection for you or for a museum or whatever you want to do with it. All you gotta do is hit the buy it now button on an eBay listing. So this story was shared with us by listener Evil B Thompson. Thank you for submitting this story over on the subreddit. And it's about a, a French collector on eBay by the name of Carriuri or Carrier. I know I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, so uh, you'll be pleased to hear, uh, as an eBay is selling all this, they have an eBay rating of 1,903 and a 100% satisfaction rating. Very important if you're going to part with this amount of cash because what they're asking for is 984,000 euros. That's around 850,000 pounds or 979,000 US dollars. So round it up, we're talking about a million US dollars here for what they describe as a 99% complete collection of every console ever released. How much in Australian dollars is that? Oh, Chris, do you want to crunch the numbers while the, I carry on? What, you can, what was the pound? It was 850,000 pounds. Yeah, half it, about 400,000 Australian. No, twice it. No, yeah, double it. <laughs> double it? Double it. Have you ever been to so, Australia? <laughs> Which way is it? (laughs) uh, it? You double it to get the Australian dollars, give or take. Yeah. Right. So about 1.7 million Australian dollars. Sounds even more substantial. So, um, yeah, that that being said, there are nice uh, photos on the listing. I would say, personally, there are not enough photos to reassure you to part with that much money, if indeed you do have that much money. The seller does have a YouTube channel, which has got some shaky hand camera footage, but again, not enough to really show off the collection as it's described. So um, I would certainly like to see more of it, but let's just assume that it's all legit and everything's there that is listed. What we do see is that it says it's all boxed. Um, So for example, you can see a shelf with every Sega Mega Drive on it. So you can see the one with Aladdin packed in, the one with OutRun packed in, every variant you can see there. And there's also every color of N64, every Super Nintendo bundle, every type of Game Boy, everything. Um, The listing says that the rest will be posted soon on the listing, which is kind of unusual for such a big listing. You'd think they'd have it all prepared from, from the word go to put it on there but they've still got to add more things to the listing and update it. Um, so 
you know, it's worth checking back. Uh, he says that it will soon include on the list in all the Neo Geos, the NEC consoles, and, and a whole lot more. 2,250 consoles in total. It's a lot of kit. So I suppose the first question to you guys is, if you could, if you had the money, and if you had the space, would you pull the trigger and press the buy it now button? Dave? Uh, no, um, and I... It's not because I, I don't have any respect for consoles and console fans and games and so on, but I, I never had consoles. I never grew up with consoles. Just through chance, I always had computers, so I don't really have any link to these. So I don't have any nostalgia for them, any attraction, so I'm, I'm not the right person for it. Um, it was always... I had the CPC and then the ST and then PCs. Um, so through that, I, I've got a link to the Apple II that I read about in, in Dragon magazines, C64 and Spectrums that I read about at the same time as the CPC and obviously the Amiga um, because of the ST. And then um, any, anything kind of too far outside of that, I, I don't really find a connection with. Um, but as for the listings, anyone that knows me will know that I complain loudly about people looking for eBay prices for Gumtree effort. And what I mean by that is people who don't put a lot of effort in and expect great results. So they'll take, they'll, they'll work out roughly the total of all the items they have, assuming they get a fantastic price on each item. They add it all together, add some on top, and then through fantasy and delusion, put it on eBay and expect to get a wonderful price for it. And I think that's what's happened here. He's looking for 450 euros per console. And I'm sure there's some rare stuff in there, but there's also lots and lots of common stuff. And when I look at box console prices on eBay, there's no way it would come out as 450 on average. On top of that, there's hardly any effort going into the listing. So would anyone, would anyone drop a million in that, Neil? Mm. Well, I think, um, yeah, you're right, 450 euro per console. You would expect some kind of bulk discount for buying them all at once, yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, if I'm going to put a listing up for a million, I'm going to hire a photographer. I'm going to I'm going to make sure that listing has everything in there. Hiring a photographer is the minimum you would need to do, unless you can do it yourself. I mean, what he's put on there is, is really low effort. Get a local YouTuber involved or even a, a, a film crew, you know, get, yeah. get a walk around of everything. I would. You'd want an hour-long video, just pulling boxes off of shelves and just really showing off the quality of it. Yeah. You'd even before an eBay and say, "Look, eBay, you, you don't allow this, but for this listing, can you allow it? They must. They, they, surely they would be happy to do it for the publicity." But the what final, are the fees like? Do you think well, <laughs> what are the they're, they're going to make? They're going to make a hundred thousand pounds on it. Um, yeah. The final nail in the coffin, though, is that I don't see an Amstrad GX four thousand there. So if he's going to sell a complete <laughs> set of consoles, where is the best one? <laughs> well i mean this guy is based in france so i think it's a given that there's going to be an amstrad gx 4000 they had so much i couldn't love see it i looked at the amstrad it's got to be there <laughs> <laughs> but um i i have a suspicion but there's no actual intention to sell. Mm. I think it's just someone showing off the collection. He's gone to all that effort, so let's put it up on eBay and show people. If someone hits the buy it now button, I'm sure they'd be laughing all the way to the bank. But I don't think he's selling this because he needs to sell it. I don't think he needs the money back. I think there's. I think this is a way of showing it off, perhaps. Do you think so? Do you think so? Um, you know, a, a lot of money would have been put into that collection over the years. I don't think it would have been a million, no. you know, a, a million US dollars gone into that. So, yeah, it's difficult. Um, th there's a delight in finding new and unexpected things in, in places you don't expect to find them, whether it's car boot sales or charity shops or a, a poorly listed eBay listing with a spelling mistake or gum tree, whatever. That's all part of the hobby, I think, hunting things down. And I really enjoy that. Um, and, you know, I'm in this wonderful situation where things actually get donated to me. And I don't think that takes anything away from it because you've got that whole excitement of well, what's going to be in the box. What have they got? Um, when, when that Odyssey turned up that I mentioned earlier, I was just gobsmacked. Um, so there's a huge amount of delight in in all these different ways of collecting retro one piece at a time. Now, you could argue that you've worked incredibly hard your whole life to, to raise a million dollars and you'll spend it the way you want to spend it. That, that's fine, but it, it feels like, feels a little bit like cheating, doesn't it? Um, I think it would be nice to split the lot out and let people pick and choose what they want. He may find that he makes even more money by splitting it out, but it would be 
he could take a year off work and treat it as a full-time job, couldn't he? Selling, selling his collection, he would easily cover his wages selling all that and you could make sure it gets into the hands of the people that want all of the individual bits. Um, so it feels a little bit, I don't want to say lazy. Um, lazy is the right I word. You think lazy is the right word? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, a little bit lazy. We've, we've agreed that there's there's far, far, far from what should be sufficient effort put into this. Mm-hmm. How about you, Chris? Would you buy this? No. Um, <laughs> when everybody, you know, somebody says, what would you do with a million dollars if you had it? Um, I'm always reminded of the movie Office Space. Do you guys remember that? Lovely film. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I won't, I won't tell you what the guy says yeah, he did with a million dollars, but um, yeah, there's one certain thing. But in all honesty, if I had a million dollars, I'd buy, well, in fact, you could buy two Ferraris, brand new, spanking new Ferraris, um, a nice 458, nice 488, in fact. That'd be fantastic. Um, yeah, that's what I'd do with the money. Certainly wouldn't put it into this, but maybe if I was collecting to set up a museum or something, then of course you would look at it differently to what you would do as, a, as an individual with money like that. I'm glad you did the numbers there, Dave, actually, because I was sitting there. This is why I had a confused look on my face earlier while Dave and Neil were talking. I was bashing away at my calculator going, I was using the, the American dollar value and I was going, but that's $440 per console. That That's not worth it. <laughs> you know for most of the collection that's probably not worth it so yeah i don't know that's 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 on, my on top on of that do you really want to have a sega mega drive with one pack in and the one six months later with a different pack in game no. is that why would you no no it's not for me to gatekeep and see what people want and people what people don't want but i would find it difficult to think you'd want to have I don't know, a dozen different Sega Mega Drives with the various different pack-in games on them. Yeah, yeah. Unless if, you're in if, I were, or something. if I were in the market or anybody in Australia, the the, do the dollar exchange rate against the pound is actually in our favour at the moment. So it actually comes out to 144,000. Um, no, sorry, 1.44 million. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, that makes it worth it. Let's do it. <laughs> I, I understand the argument. Um just uh, to push back on what Dave was saying, that mm. it's for the completionists. That's why you would want every variant, because you want to complete the set. And I'm talking to a man here in Dave that sat in front of a wall of video games. And how much did you want to complete your set of Ultima games on that shelf, Dave? You wanted to fill those gaps. I do not have on the shelf the Ultima 8 and then the Ultima 8 speech pack and then the Ultima 8, Ultima 8 with the speech pack. I don't have duplicates that way. I don't have Ultima Seven, and then the Ultima Seven complete one. I don't have, I don't have compilations and the games, and I don't, I don't believe that's right for my collection to do that. So maybe that's why I don't think this way. Right, fair yeah. enough. So you don't, you don't have to have Ultima Seven and then Ultima Seven on the Super Nintendo and then all variants of it. No, just, just one to complete the set. Yeah. I have seen other people doing that, so maybe 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 I should wind my neck back in here. Maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm projecting my own personal preferences onto other people. I shouldn't do that. So you're right. Well, you heard it here first. Dave winds his neck in. <laughs> <laughs> it will come out later on. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think if I had a million um, US dollars to buy this, I'd probably spend that money on probably a building probably a dedicated museum building maybe i could buy the mill in its entirety although that's going to be a lot more than a million i think to buy a mill of that size in the cotswolds but a space and then continue to collect in the way that i am discovering new things each week fixing things up knowing each thing that goes on display intimately because i've worked on it and i've researched it and i've made a video about it and just i like that whole process i really do enjoy it um but you know what i think there could be someone out there who would make a big offer on this. Remember that company we talked about recently who were trying to buy every single video game that came out and they had a, a bunker or whatever that they were putting them in? Where was that? Was it in Scandinavia somewhere? I think it, it was. was they yeah. were Sweden. Collecting everything. In Sweden, was it? Carlsbad, maybe? Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if someone like that swept this up. Maybe they'd put in an offer for half a million or something. They'd maybe get themselves a good deal. But nobody else has the room for it all, surely surely and um, if you if you're a collector of these things then why would you you would assume you already had some of them or most of them or many of them at least so you're then having to buy a lot of duplicates mm -hmm. mm. well there we go if you're interested in taking a look at it the link to the ebay listing is in the show notes so go and have a look and check back periodically to see how it's evolved and 
well, who knows? If you happen to be the person out there that hits the button and buys it, we'd love to have you on the show to tell us all about what you're going to do with it. Um, it's a long shot. It's a long shot, but let's put the call out there. Maybe we can have you on as a future guest. <laughs> as you guys know, I won myself a C64 in a raffle, and I've had some fun with it, playing some games and getting to see what all the fuss was about. Apparently, these were quite big in America and Australia. Um, but you know what it's like. If there's no nostalgia attached to a system or a game or whatever it is, Sometimes certain machines become little more than shelf space uh, or a nice, you know, display piece while you try and come up with a good reason for owning them or, or another reason to use them. Well, if you too have a C64 collecting dust, a guy called Linus Orkerson, uh from Sweden has the perfect solution. You could turn it into a theremin. That's right. Your SID chip could soon be singing the theme tune to Star Trek uh, while you wave your hands around above the, the in, in the air, hovering a foot or so above the, the bread bin of awesomeness. So Reddit user SeniorBy445 dropped us a link to Linus's video on YouTube in which he happily shows off his Theremin 64 whilst playing Amazing Grace, in fact. He then goes into telling us not so much how this is put together. That's in more detail in his blog. Um, instead, he, he rather expertly gives us a tutorial on how electricity flows and how electrons are manipulated across a gap or capacitance is essentially what he's talking about. And he does this to explain in principle how a theremin works and in fact how most devices are designed to not be a theremin or in essence, to not be influenced by us waving our hands around near them, um, which ordinarily would, in fact, affect the flow of electrons to a degree, if not designed out. It's some pretty high-level stuff that he's explaining, um, but he's explaining it very well in layman's terms. So what do you need to make your own theremin? Well, all you need is two 555 timer chips, four resistors, a spoon, yep, a spoon, uh, and a clamp, which look just like a G clamp, and of course a C64. The very simple circuit constructed is connected to the C64 via user ports, uh, via the user port, sorry, on pins CNT1 and CNT2. His blog details how he's written some software um, to basically detect the signals received by the two antenna circuits, which are the clamp and the spoon, uh, but he doesn't actually show the code. Um, and again, we'll include a link to his blog as well. He's in, in fact more explaining the principles behind the code rather than the code itself. And that's where I start to go a bit blurry eyed, if I'm honest. So I'll jump back to my comfort zone and simply say, this is cool. And it just amazes me that somebody like Linus would wake up one day and go, hang on, I could make a theremin out of a C64. And he goes and, and does it. Why is it cool? Because it's not just a theremin. He could have just made a theremin, but it's a theremin using the SID chip. So it has that C64 sound to it. That's cool, right, Neil? Oh, it's cool. And when you listen to the performance on the video, um, it, it sounds like, I guess, one channel of the music that you would have got from a lot of C64 tunes, the, the sort of background uh, noise. I'm just waiting for the drums to kick in at any point and get those nice crunchy C64 drums alongside it. But nice. yeah, maybe you can develop it that so we can hit a key for them to come in. There's all sorts you could do with it, but it sounds great. It sounds like pure Sid, pure C64 when he's performing it. He's definitely got the theremin face down to a T. When you watch people perform with a the theremin, there's a face they pull. It's <laughs> you know the one I mean. When you watch it, just look for theremin face. Um, and I can't believe you introduced this whole story today, Chris, without mentioning Doctor Who. Oh, of course, you can't talk about theremin without mentioning Doctor <sighs> Who and that theme tune. Yeah. Um, other other nominations could have been Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys mm. at a theremin. There was Mister Ons by Portishead. Was a I was about to say more recent one, but it was in the 90s, so not so recent anyway. Was that, was that to do with Captain Scarlet then? No, it wasn't, Dave. It wasn't, Dave. Nothing to do with Captain Scarlet. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's a lady, or there was a lady, she passed away in the 90s, called Clara Rockmore, who is considered to be the best theremin player of all time. So if you want to follow up your research, having seen the C64 one, go and go and watch Clara again. You can... You can see theremin face in action. Um, and 
just just to take a sidestep here and go off on another tangent because I love the chip. I love the music that comes out of the C64 and um, all of the composers that just make it sing, like Rob Hubbard and people like that. However, is there a danger that the SID chip is becoming what historically will then be remembered as chiptune music, even though there are many other audio chips out there from the era? Um, yes. Is the mm. Dave straight in there? Is the popularity of the SID going to mean that others are forgotten about and chiptune is SID? Is, is that is that a danger? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I think the SID is the best sounding of the the eight bit chips that we get used to the SID chip the AY AY is great but the SID chip's a little bit better that the Atari Pokey uh, is unique and those those Atari arcade games that used the Pokey are fantastic but the SID's probably the best one but it's ended up being SID's the SID's the only one that people talk about and it's a bit of a shame. Mm -hmm. No, it is a good. Point. Yeah, when you when yeah. you hear chip tunes being used in pop music every now and then, you know it sort of comes in waves. Every now and then, chip tunes become popular again and they appear in the in the charts. It always sounds like a SID chip, yeah. or um, or it'll be some kind of plug in for whatever modern uh, music package they use, which is geared around the SID chip. So, yeah, let let's let's stand up for the for the AY and the other sound chips. But anyway, <laughs> let's get back onto the story, uh, Chris. Tell yeah. us more. No, no. I mean, you raised a good point. It should have been the far superior one twenty eight k Spectrum and its AY chip. Absolutely, um, <laughs> made some more enemies. Uh, but no, yeah. He, as as mentioned, he plays Amazing Grace. Uh, it's not the you know it's not the theme tune to Star Trek, which is the first one I go to in my head. But you've raised some other good alternatives there, Neil, which is great. In theory, I'm wondering he could use different voices or sound effects. Excuse my excuse my sort of lack of knowledge on this side of thing, but it doesn't have to be the particular sound that he's chosen to use from the SID chip. Surely he could he could pick a different sound effect, mm. uh, and then he could. You're still using the mechanism of how you play a theremin, waving your hands about in the air like a lunatic, but you're using those <laughs> other other sound effects um, to actually get the tune. That that would be quite cool. And then my mind's going, mm. well, surely. Sorry, Neil, you wanted to jump in there? Well, the, the SID chip has a lot of filters on there, which you can mm. adapt and, and, and change. So I, I think I think we're talking about things here where he's he's just produced a first prototype and yeah. gone, look, it's possible. So all of this isn't for any lack of trying. He probably just hasn't got round to it yet. So we're not talking down the project in oh, any no, way. Not at all. But, um, yeah, you could get some of those filters sort of sweeping as he plays and things like that. There's this, there's loads that could be done, and as you say, different sounds would be lovely and bringing in in, in drums and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited. I hope he continues to work on it. Yeah, uh, and another place my mind's gone on this is, I mean, essentially what he's done is create an external peripheral. Is is really what he's done. The C64 is still a C64. So could you do this for other machines such as the Amiga? Could you do a version uh, make a theremin out of an amiga so that it's the the, the sounds of paula um, and the different sound effects are even you know midi samples or whatever you could have a theremin demo party <laughs> yeah. no you could you could i mean in the case of the amiga the, the sid chip is really a sound generator so it creates mm. those those waves whereas the amiga um it can be made to sound like that but it's it's more geared towards playing back sampled sounds isn't it yeah the pcm sounds so um i'm sure you could still make it happen but there's you know there's a bit more soul to the sid chip for this kind of project than you might get out of paula i think yeah yeah true true well what i'm thinking is if, if you like if you're using something like pro tracker you can use the the your your amiga's keyboard as a keyboard or a piano keyboard uh, in essence so you're then using the mechanism of waving your hands around for the theremin to choose your your note and your volume, which is how you play a theremin, but it's the sample that it's going to play. So you're absolutely right. Yes, it is sampled, but you're still using that, the same actions. It'll be, it'll be an interesting exercise. What do you reckon, Dave? Could you do it with an ST? Finish the sentence. <laughs> or, or are they more useful propping open a toilet door? <laughs> you can't you can't put that in the show notes and then leave it out <laughs> so first of all i love the sound of the theremin um as the video says it was commonly used to indicate something otherworldly in films and i think i've seen so much of that over the years that i've got an instant pavlovian response to hearing the theremin now it's code for something otherworldly you hear it in star trek in um 
in uh, uh, Doctor Who and so on, but it was also used in incidental music and kind of ambient sounds as well, just to indicate that. It's a, it just, it's, it's a trigger response now to, to indicate otherworldly. I love it. There's nothing else that sounds quite like it. And I, I wonder, have we, have we heard, has Theremin disappeared recently? Um, have we heard it really since the 90s? Well, we haven't, but I've just been doing a little bit of hunting because I had to look for this after Chris raised uh -huh. the Amiga and interfacing this peripheral. Uh, if you take a look at wave-theremin.com, it's a MIDI theremin off the shelf that you can buy. There you go. So wow. there you go. You, you can plug in your MIDI theremin and use it with any MIDI-compatible device or computer or whatever. So there, there's, your, there's your in for oh, ProTracker. There it is. So, And it says at the bottom, made in Australia. Where's the buy oh. now button? It's made only an Aussie would do this. Probably got attacked by drop bears and was having some time rehab time in hospital. Crazy, cool. As for the Atari ST, I misunderstood. I thought this was what you did to a broken C sixty four. So I was going to say, no, you wouldn't want to do this to an Atari ST because they're already so accomplished for music. Um, and as a wee side note, just before we continue, the, the Atari ST can actually emulate the SID chip, and there's a few ST demos of it, which are quite cool. Um, but a working Atari ST is the source of pretty much all of the music you hear in the 90s. And I think Chris is a secret Atari ST fan because he set me up with this question. Um, the ST had many ports in the system. Timing was bang on. It had a crisp, high-resolution mono screen. It had a fast CPU, and it had all this out of the box, so any proper music studio had an Atari ST, maybe paired up with an Akai S S1000 or S950, and as Fatboy Slim said, they changed his life. And I, I hope that Hoffman talks about sometimes getting an ST. So I hope that Hoffman gets an ST and an Akai. Imagine what he could produce with that. But, Neil? Imagine if it had Blitter. Carry on. <laughs> An Atari STE then. Now, don't worry going. though, I don't want Amiga <laughs> fans to be upset. The Amiga still has its place. And I recently read an article in The Guardian that gave the Amiga praise for being a poor man studio. And what they meant was that people who couldn't afford a proper setup of an Atari ST with a sampler, etc., could do it all to some degree with an Amiga with its Paula chip. Obviously, it's not as good, but you could get by with the lowly Amiga, the cheap Amiga on its own, and make some great music. The Amiga had been there you go. in it, day, uh, Neil. Like it was just a cheap external add-on. You could plug them in, but the the yeah. ST was always always touted for its perfect timing, so that's why uh, people like them in enough. the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. but. Um, yeah, well, Dave's neck is is no longer wound in. It's it's <laughs> sprung out like a jack in the box. Um, there he is. He's back. He's back. I knew it wouldn't last long. Um, I, I can't let this go without also mentioning another project that we talked about on the show. I think we talked about it, it on the show way back. Um, there was a lady by the name of Jerry Ellsworth who made a bass guitar with a Sid. So you had the the neck of the bass guitar and then the the whole Commodore 64 where you would have the body of the guitar and it it looked brilliant and it mm. sounded brilliant. So that's another one to look at. That's over on Hackaday. Um, I will make sure Duncan's got the link to that for the show notes so you can see even more Sid goodness. I mean, the, the whole point is the machine is working. Yep. So it is still a working C64 in this project. Uh, and the mod is fully external from what I understand. Uh, so, you know, yeah, it's not something to do with a broken machine. It's, it's a working machine. So in theory, yeah, you could do it with an ST, Dave, and you could use MIDI as well to get any voice, you know, give any voice to the theremin. So that would actually be really cool. Uh, back to the original project. The circuits look simple enough for even me to put together. Neil, you want to disagree with that? <laughs> No, no, and um, sorry, sorry, I left. I accidentally didn't un. So when we're oh, recording, okay. we've got this little button we can press, which which is a virtual raising of your hand to say I want to talk. So we try not to crash over each other's vocals. I forgot to unclick it. Sorry, I was just sort of waving my hand around in the wind needlessly. I put it down now. Carry on. That's all good. Yeah, the whole screen bounces up and down just so that you guys know as well. So we do see it in the corner of our eye. We go over to you, or you know, however we can throw across. But yeah, no, these. I've said before, I don't, you know, I'm not really, don't really have the confidence to put together complex projects, but the, these circuits look easy enough even for me. Um, and I even played with 555 timers during my GCSEs all those years ago. But knowing where to begin with the code is a whole other thing. So I did ask Linus if he'd be releasing the software and he explained that, 
and these are his words, releasing the program involves a bit of work. As a debugging aid, there are sprites moving across the screen to visualize the parameters, but the sprite graphics are just random garbage from memory, so the screen is a mess. He did also say, though, if at some point I release the software, then I will release the source code too. So there is that hope. Linus did also um, very kindly gave us permission to use images and, and a scroll of his web blog as well as footage from his video. It would be tempting to put some of the um, Amazing Grace in, in into this edit, but I'd rather just send traffic to his video. So please do check out his blog and his video as well and, and, and hear the tones of, of Sid being played as a theremin. It's really cool to watch. Floppy disks in Japan. Minister declares war on old-fashioned <laughs> technology. Um, and just what we need, another war. Um, Japan has declared war, and it's on the floppy disk, according to a story, on the BBC, submitted by GoToGoSub. Their subheading is, Japan's digital minister has declared war on floppy disks and other retro tech used by the country's bureaucrats. Now, unfortunately, I'm too old and fat to enlist in the <laughs> army, so I won't be joining the fight for my disks. Um, personally, I, I love my disks. I know where I am with them. I'm very, very fond of using disks. And I really don't enjoy disk replacement, Gotex and flash floppies and so on. I don't like them at all. Uh, mm. Neil, do you use disks in the cave? And do you like them? Would you like to use disks? I know that you don't on the the systems you've got out, but would you like to? Well, I'm I'm just before we go on, I'm just wondering if we keep saying the word war, how the YouTube algorithm is going to react to this? If it's going to bury our show away, or if it's going to promote it for a bit of hype? I don't know. So we'll, we'll soon find out. War, war war um so yeah discs do i use discs i do use discs i mean you can't avoid using discs for setting up certain machines and every now and then people like to just put a floppy disk in and um enjoy using a floppy disk however i've i'm not averse at all to gotex and floppy drive emulators for the convenience of them i've got no problem with them whatsoever um especially um well i, I guess the ideal setup an ideal example is either the CPC6128 I have, which has three inch discs, and it's just a flick of a switch to switch between the external emulator and the internal drive to use a disc, or the Amiga 600 where you've got a compact flash card in there as the hard drive, but you can just put a floppy disk in. I know a compact hard drive is not <laughs> comparable to a floppy disk, but you can still put a floppy disk in to, to load from it while still enjoying all the benefits of WHD load when you want to. So it's nice to be able to, but I, I've got no problem with people using floppy emulators. Now, um, I had a little look on Amazon because I wanted to see if new three and a half inch discs were still available readily. Turns out they are. There's lots out there. Um, there were some TDK branded ones, some Imation branded ones. They were the first ones that came up on Amazon. I'm sure if you look further afield, you'll find lots more. Of course, these are new old stocks, so reliability of them is going to depend on a lot of factors, such as storage conditions. I did try to see if anyone was still making them in 2022. The most recent I could find was Sony, who it appears ceased manufacturing them around March 2011. And it said in that particular article that I found, as recently as 2008, Sony was selling 8.5 million floppies in Japan alone, which is quite surprising for a, a country that brings us so much technical innovation. Um, but like us, they also have a strong office culture, so probably adhere to the same, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality and drag things out, systems out far longer than they should be. Um, it's the same the world over, really. So perhaps not so much of a surprise. But I would be interested to hear if any listeners know of any more recent manufacturers of floppy disks. Is there one still out there making them or when was the last? Um, I'd be interested to know. However, going through the Amazon listings, it was on the Imation box of new discs. Um, you know, when you look at Amazon, you've got reviews and just above the reviews, you've got questions. So potential buyers can ask a question of the seller. And the question at the top was, hi, I have purchased these diskettes, but it's been so long since I had them. Which way do you slide the little square to use the diskette? I mean, what are they doing? They're talking about the little metal um, thing at the top that you slide to reveal the disc, but that's just done automatically when you put the disc into the disk drive. Do so, they mean the right protect notch? Do you think that? Do you think they mean the right protect notch? Which, oh, maybe. But, 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 then you can, 
you can use the disc whichever way the square's round. You know, it just means it's That's right protected or not. I don't know, but if you'd used them before, you you wouldn't forget something like that, would you? No. Um, but maybe this is representative of the the kinds of questions because there are generations now that never used a floppy disk, and yeah, quite rightly, why would they have done? Other than I know, clicking the save icon, and I should point out the the trope that everyone toes out here just to get out of the way. Yes, we use the save icon for a floppy disk, even though it's been generations since we used it. Yeah, it's been said. Um, <laughs> I thought I'd do a little bit of research, and where else to go but the biggest floppy disk retailer on the internet, floppydisk.com. Um, they sell new old stock ones. They sell new loose disks they sell them in bulk they can um, recover information from damaged floppy disks and they also recertify used floppy disks for reuse um, i've used them before to buy floppy disks i bought um, five and a quarter and three and a half inch uh, double sided double density ones not the high density more recent ones these are the older ones so i reached out to the owner tom persky with a few questions because i wanted to make sure i understood things correctly rather than just come out with statements that are unfounded so i wanted this to dispel some misconceptions about floppies as well so he, he confirmed that as far as he's aware and i guess he should be aware if they are floppy disks are no longer being manufactured that there are plenty of stocks available, new and unused, new and unused and sealed, and checked and reformatted. The best place to get them worldwide is, I think, floppydisk.com, and Tom said they try their best. Um, I asked if drives are still being made, because I didn't think so, and he confirmed he doesn't think so, but there still may be drives being made in China, but he doesn't think so. And my suggestion there is that the recycling slim drives from laptops so what some place in China do uh, is with e-waste, they take old computers and they, they strip them down and they'll take some chips off them, they'll take some drives off them and the USB slim flop external floppy drives that you buy on eBay, I think they are made from recovered, um, recovered laptop drives. Well, we did find evidence of that. Was it? I can't remember who was buying them. If it was yourself, it might have been Richard in the build. It was me. It was I you. Sent, yeah. I sent one to to Pillock, and he took it apart. And I'd not taken it apart. He took it apart, and he found rust <laughs> on the drive. So it had been one that had been presumably recovered from a laptop and put in the shell. I don't have any problem with that. I mean, it, it mm -hmm. seems it seems ethical to do that rather than to make new stuff when they can when they can reclaim it that way. So that's a that's a good example of e-cycling. Well, you um, say you, you use the word ethical, but you don't know the conditions of the the, the people that were having to recover no, these things and put no, them together. I, but yeah, I, I know as what opposed, you're to say. as opposed to putting them into an incinerator and then making a new one yeah. in the factory down yeah, the road. Yeah. <laughs> now, I also stated my opinion and floor disk which was that floppy disks that have been stored correctly and were manufactured properly are still entirely reliable and most of the problems come from contaminants or improper storage and he he agreed with that and he said that no physical media is entirely reliable floppy disks cds dvds flash drives sd cards and even hard drives fail the disks we sell are performing about as well as they did 20 years ago so he's saying that there's no no difference now in floppy disk performance than there was when they were still being used 20 years ago. He said floppies have always had a 1% to 2% failure rate, so they are not a good choice for storage of info. We have a floppy disk transfer service that is able to transfer more than 80% of the information on disks that are more than 20 years old. If the disks were stored correctly, we have an excellent chance of getting the data off old floppy disks. Um, so thank you very much. Just uh, the, the uh, if the disks are stored correctly, what are the ideal conditions for storing floppy disks? So I've done my own research into this, and I've got some conclusions here. So I did it into the more rare three-inch floppy disks that were used in Amstrad CPC and PCW and also in the Spectrum Plus 3, among other places. So I got hold of 258, which is a huge number of these disks because they're they're much more expensive than three and a half inch floppies. Um, they're maybe three or four times the price for a new um, three and a half inch floppy to get a used three inch. So I got 258 from eBay from various different places. 152, which is 59% of them work correctly. 
68, which is 29%, had a small amount of errors, but were still usable if you avoided those errors on the, on the disk, if you marked those sectors as bad. And 38, which is 15%, were unusable. And every damaged disk showed signs of contamination from dirt or more from water condensation, Neil. Well, I'm going to say this because if I don't, a listener will. That's 103%, Dave. Um, be <laughs> I, think you meant, I think you meant 26% of them uh, had a small amount of errors. You said 29. Oh, sorry, did I say 29? Yeah. I, I meant to say 26. <laughs> sorry. Um, thank you for pointing that out because if you didn't, there would be several comments. Um, so, yeah. I found that every damaged disc saw, saw, showed signs of contamination. Now, most of the time it was it was water, but sometimes the discs were filthy. And when the disc is filthy, it gets inside. Mm. But most of the time it was, it was water condensation. And I was able to tell because the little metal shutter had a little bit of misting on it, had a little bit of residue from where condensation had formed and then evaporated and dried out. Um, so I, I found that it's, it's the storage that matters. So presumably, in the UK at least, they were taken out and put in the garage where they they got very cold and then warm and then very cold and very warm and, wa and water formed, evaporated, condensated on them, and that's what damaged them. Um, mm. Chris, how do you feel about discs and do you like using them? I do actually enjoy using them, um, but also emulated solutions, which which I'll get on to. Um, I, I have to bring up though, Dave. The the Guardian also ran with this same story because we do live in co copy and paste journalism, and the image that they <laughs> ran with was an Amiga five hundred with the disc sticking out, which was pretty cool um, to see. Uh, but yeah, same story. But yeah, I mean, uh, if I'm firing up the A five hundred, mainly because my A twelve hundred doesn't have uh, currently a working floppy disk drive because that needs cleaning. Um, but my A five hundred squeaky clean disk. Uh, drive so every time I throw a disc in it I make a point of checking the disc um, and and what I think of the quality of the disc before I put it in the drive because I don't want to contaminate the drive and thereby transfer muck onto future discs or onto the heads so what I do is I actually um, I, I put the disc in a disc cleaning caddy um, and I turn it so not to clean it necessarily because if it doesn't need cleaning don't touch it but I, I turn yeah. it and I and I feel for grinding or, or resistance um, or, or you know nasty noises and then i'll also because the disc cleaning caddy has opened that metal um, sheath i can also have a bit of a quick visual inspection if i'm a bit paranoid what i'll actually do is and i'll be honest about this i'll throw the disc in a pc drive because they're easier to replace and I'll, I'll let that spin up and i'll have a listen is that sounding smooth or is it sounding nasty and only if i'm happy then will i throw it in my a500 yeah. drive dave where would someone get one of those 3D printed kits to, to view the disc surface and make sure it's not damaged, Neil? <laughs> You're muted. Hello. Sorry, I was muted. Sorry. <laughs> Did you ask me a question? <laughs> yes. Where would someone buy one of those 3D printed kits so they can view the disc surface, potentially clean it, but to see if it's damaged? Mm. Where would they buy one of those? <laughs> well, I would direct people to my stall, but we're out of stock at the moment. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe in future you could go to rmcretro.store. Oh, eBay is what Neil means. Go to eBay. Loads of places in eBay. Don't go to RMC yeah. Retro Store. They're unreliable. <laughs> There we go. Dave was trying to help Neil out with a with a that was a completely unplanned plug. Um, but if we're going to be plugging, um, <laughs> funnily enough, so the the disc that I most recently threw into my A five hundred, which I did do a video on, so that's that'll be dropping around the same time as this episode. There we go. There's my plug. Um, but it's Shadow of the Beast. So I've got Shadow of the Beast long box. First time I've actually owned it, um, and I, I you know made sure I checked the discs and, and threw it in. And so going back to, you know, discs versus emulation, yes, I have fired that up on the A1200 and I've played it in emulation, but there was something amazing about getting the discs out of the long box, throwing them in the A500, hearing that thunk as they they, they make contact and they drop down um, to be read and knowing that that game has fired up from these 30-year-plus old discs out of the boxes. Just a completely different experience. But I have no issue with GoTech either. I use that as well. 
it just makes sense. I use actually GoTech as infinite blank disks. That's my main use of it. So I can just store information <laughs> on them. Yeah. As for three and a half inch disks, I bought thousands probably. And buying used ones on eBay, Atari ST or Amiga ones is a real um, lottery. And it's not, I don't think it's worthwhile because the majority of them bought, the actual majority of them have errors on them because I think they've been chucked into garages or lofts where they've got cold and warm, cold and warm, cold and warm over 20 or 30 years and they're now junk. So I, I, that's why I went to floppydisk.com and got them from there. Um, not that expensive. Um, now, um, it's not just the floppy disk that he's against. It's other obsolete technology like the fax. And despite how I feel about the preservation and the use of retro stuff and the, the real joy I get from using disks, I do actually agree with him. I, 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 am, I think he's right. There is no reason to use floppy disks now or faxes, and they should be replaced. I'm a technology enthusiast, and I know that many, if not most, of the viewers are. So the truth is that in the real world, things need to move forward. Um, get rid of the fax machines, get rid of the disks, move on to, to better technology, technology that speaks to, to other parts of the technology. Um, Labour is expensive, get rid of it using that technology. But nobody will take my disk from me. I'll be using these disks forever. Time now for our community question of the week. So let's just remind ourselves as to what the question was last week. Um, it was a, a question of, um, oh, it was about sealed retro, wasn't it? Retro tech and games. So we were talking about whether or not you should break the seal on your retro, um, the dangers that might be happening inside in terms of cables perishing, batteries leaking. Um, and we've just talked about floppy disks. It, you know, should you open up and test your floppy disks and make sure... Um, for example, staples aren't turning to rust, as we found in an example we talked about last week. So we put the question out there, and you faxed in your answers to us. <laughs> and uh, we're now going to read the uh, the top three over on the subreddit. Uh, let me open the link here, because I am down to read the first one. So um, that's quite a short answer at the top um, from STFM. <laughs> Dave, is that you under a different name? <laughs> no, 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 no. no. It's, in fact, it's it, it's not. I mean, it, it's nearly my view on it, but it, um, I, uh, okay. I will still buy sealed games. So SDFM's uh, take on it is very short. He just says, yes, I don't buy sealed anyway. There are too many fake sealed items for sale with inflated prices these days. Back I should comment. really come in with a, a comment that someone left on the YouTube video last week that I thought was quite pertinent. Mm -hmm. Sealed games open the door to fraud. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine if you faked a box of, uh, let's say, a Super Nintendo game where there's not so much reason to open it up if you've got an, Ever, an EverDrive type thing? If you faked a box, the best way to save you the effort of faking the stuff inside it mm. is to seal it up to make sure nobody actually opens it up. And you can put a block of wood in there, mm -hmm. a scrap of cardboard instead of mm -hmm. open it up. So I hadn't thought of that at all, but there must be... There must be out there. There must be out there sealed games that nobody will ever open because it devalues it, and in fact, they're frauds. And inside, there's nothing. Well, do you want me to tell you a little bit of a secret there, Dave? Yes. There are at least two games, big box games, on the shelves in the store that I'm sitting in front of that don't have the right games discs in there because <gasps> somebody just sent me a pristine-looking box without a game in it, and I thought, well. I've that's such a nice thing to look at. I've got to put it on the shelf. So I, I just put some some blank floppies in there so at least people can take it off the shelf and have a look. I feel lied to. You said, <laughs> you, you've told us, Neil, that if someone said to you that they wanted to open up one of the sealed games, you'd quite happily yeah. let them open up one of the sealed I games. Would. Just not one of yeah. those. You just issued a <laughs> challenge to people to go into the cave, go into the shop, pick up a game and see if they can work out which one is the fake <laughs> discs and then ask you to open up and find out if they're right. Ah, but now this is still authentic because if you think back, what's happened here is somebody's gone to the shop, bought the game, swapped the discs out, <laughs> returned the game because they've kept the game they really wanted, and then it's been resealed. So it's authentic. <laughs> That's so not the shop. Instead of Shadow of the Beast, they got Air the Duck. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, dear. Yep. Who wants to read the next answer then? Dave can go. So, um, Springy NZ1, so it's, I'm thinking Springy from New Zealand, um, 
Depends. Games are meant to be played. Yes, yes, they are. But if you have a sealed copy of Ultima 4 and a downloaded version, why not keep the copy sealed? But if you don't have any other way of playing the game, rip it open away you go. Now, I, I don't agree. Hmm. If, I, if I want to play Ultima 4, I'm not going to use the disc in the box, but I'm going to use the cloth map. And I'm going yeah. to use the manuals, and I'm using the guide there. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing for me about these these big box games is that the box and the contents add so much to the experience. Mm-hmm. And playing the game and using the, the the PDF manual and scans that you get from from good old games, it's not quite as good. So yeah, I, I think the the whole the whole point is open them up, use the manuals, use the maps, all those kind of things. Read the novella, all those kind of things. It gets you into the game a lot more yeah feelies need to be need to be felt um uh, my my answers are actually in a different order to yours because springy was the third answer on my list with thin on top 84 is the second answer what have you got there chris oh that's what i've got Uh, so i'll go for thin on top 84 sealed games should absolutely be opened they were designed to be enjoyed uh through play so keeping them forever behind plastic robs them of their purpose these days my aim is to play original games on original hardware in a cost-effective way that means buying loose game cartridges for example i don't worry about boxes anymore back in the day if there were a a widespread option to buy games at a lower cost without the packaging i probably would have gone for it imagine how many more titles i could have enjoyed that's not to say i didn't enjoy the unboxing experience at the time Uh, i used to display the original boxes and hang them on picture hooks uh, so one corner of my bedroom looked a bit like Neil's shop in the cave. That would have been nice to see. I don't own anything that is sealed. No, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Mm. Um, I remember thinking way back in the day, why do we have all these big boxes when uh, mainly when CDs were starting to become obsolete? And I was yeah. thinking to myself, they could be on a USB stick. Why do we need this packaging just to attract the eye? And guess what? Now it's gone too far the other way and we don't even have uh, any physical copy. You just download the game and off you go. Yeah. yeah merchandising i think it is mm. i had a browse through all of the other answers to this um and thank you there, there was there was quite a lot of um engagement on this one i think pretty much everyone has said don't buy sealed games or break the seal and play the games everyone's um in agreement there's just one comment buried away in there from um pc engine gaiden who says I've got a couple of sealed games, and to be honest, the only reason I haven't opened them is because they're not very good conversions. <laughs> so, you know, you can leave a sealed game sealed if it's just a rubbish game. I think that's a legitimate reason. Uh, some things are best not opened. But on the whole, everybody wants to open them, uh, and I think we're all in agreement here. Hmm. So our community question of the week for this week, then, uh, if you'd like to take part, head over to our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, where you will find the most recent episode and the question of the week pinned at the top. And you can post your answers in there. Top three at the end of the week, we will read out. Our question of the week this week, then, is what would you declare war on? in retro we've seen that japan have declared war on the humble three and a half inch floppy disk well it's over to you now we're trying to avoid modern tech so let's let's not go into the realms of dlc and nfts and all of that we're talking about retro so what do you want to declare war on i've got some examples in my head but i don't want to say them because i want to leave you to uh, to put them in the answers but i'm sure we've, we've all got a few things immediately coming to mind the commodore amiga Oh, Dave. <laughs> I don't hang need on, it. How do I, I don't how need do I, it. I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't need Dave. I think there's a button. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So head over to our subreddit and declare war, and we'll see what kind of army assembles behind you by way of upvotes or downvotes, if not. And I'll look forward to those answers next week. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure chatting to you as always. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you're not already subscribed, head over to youtube.com forward slash This Week in Retro and take a moment to subscribe to us or through whichever podcast app that you use to uh, to keep track of us and follow us so we know how many listeners are out there and um, who we're talking to because we really do enjoy making this show as we edge ever closer to show number 100. We have had some suggestions for what we should do for the 100th show, including uh, the suggestion of a live show how do we feel about that well the only problem with the live show is when can we do a live show that people would like that people can actually listen into because we we record this at a a time where most people couldn't watch it this is true 
Um, mm. But of mm. course, it would still be uploaded as normal for people to listen to. Yeah. Uh, but we could we could try and make that happen. So we give that, we, we've got eight more shows to figure that out. So we will certainly let you know in good time what we're going to do to celebrate the big one hundred. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you as always. Take care and bye bye everyone. Bye. Bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agima, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.